and welcome back to the Rounds Table. We're really excited this season. We have a new sound, a new production team, and some new content planned. So today I'm delighted to be with Fahad Razak. Fahad is an internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey Fahad, how are you? I'm all great to be back. It's uh, great to have you back. It's great to be back as well. How was your summer? What did you do with all the free time when you weren't recording podcasts? It was a great summer. I did a lot of clinical work, but in my free time, I had some vacation and am refreshed and energized and ready to go. You sound refreshed and energized. Uh, as for me, I'm Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And as always, the rounds table is delighted to be hosted online at healthydebate.ca. So before we start our episode today, I want to ask our listeners, our audience, a question. The question is, do you want the rounds table to offer CME credits or continuing medical education credits? As you can imagine, this comes at some cost to us, and we're not really sure how useful our listeners find the CME credits and whether it's important to you. So if you do want us to continue offering CME, please tweet at me at Amol A. Verma, or email me amol.a.verma at gmail.com, and let me know if you want us to keep offering CME credits. If we don't hear from you, we are not going to continue offering the credits, so uh, please let us know. Okay, so without further delay, let's get right down to it. Today we're talking about two topics as always. Fahad is going to talk about a new type of maneuver to stop dangerous heart rhythms, And I am going to talk about a new survey about e-cigarette use in adolescence. It's a lot of new. I use the word new like 42 times in that introduction. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay, Fahad, tell me about this new vagal maneuver. Sure. So I'm going to talk about a trial that was just published in The Lancet by Andrew Applebaum and colleagues. And they found that a new method of Valsalva was superior to what we conventionally uh, have been teaching people and what we conventionally use in converting supraventricular tachycardias, or SVTs, back to sinus rhythm. So uh, what's the trial called? Because I think it has a good name. It's called the REVERT trial. I like it. Okay, so Fahad, let's paint a picture for our uh, listeners when this kind of maneuver would be used. So uh, you could imagine, let's say, a a 60-year-old person who uh, comes to the hospital uh, with a really fast, irregular heart rate. And let's say the nurse calls you as the doctor and says, uh, this patient has a fast, irregular heart rate. You have a look at the ECG. You determine it is this narrow, complex, supraventricular tachycardia. uh, And you decide that the patient is clinically stable. They don't need to be shocked. And so what would you typically do in that context? What's the current practice? Right. So this is a commonly occurring scenario, both in the emergency room or on a medical ward. And uh, for our typical patient, after determining that they're not unstable and don't need uh, immediate emergent cardioversion, our next step would be to try something non-invasive like a Valsalva maneuver. And a Valsalva maneuver is where they do a forced exhalation against a closed airway, or you tell them to feel like they're bearing down or having a bowel movement. And typically, you would ask them to hold that for 15 or 20 seconds. And the idea is the increased vagal tone from the Valsalva maneuver may convert them from their SVT back to sinus rhythm. Now, so you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system to counteract presumably what is a sympathetically driven fast heart rate. Right. And as most of us who have attempted this maneuver with our patients know, it rarely works. And so the immediate next step would be to try something like a carotid massage. That also typically doesn't work. And then we move on to adenosine, 
which is a drug which breaks the SVT, converting them back to sinus rhythm, but also is something that you need to have equipment on board in case they are persistently bradycardic. Patients hate it. One of the commonly occurring, one of the common things that a patient will say is, it feels like I'm going to die. And so something that we don't want to use, but is effective in converting people when needed. And so what is this new technique that the authors have brought forward to study? Right. So this was really driven by the observation that the Valsalva maneuver as it currently exists is actually not very effective in converting people to SVT. So the estimates in the literature is it works somewhere between 5 to 20% of the time. And actually a new Cochrane review suggests that there's actually no convincing evidence that Valsalva works whatsoever. So what the authors here tried to test was a modified Valsalva technique. So same initial approach, having someone close their airway and exert or have that feeling of bearing down, and then follow that by having the patient be supine and raising their legs, a passive leg raise. The idea being that that, that, will, further stimulus the, uh, that will further stimulate the vagal system, and that would be their modified technique. So conventional Valsalva is just that initial feeling of bearing down or exhaling against a closed airway, and this modified technique is then after that also lazing, raising their legs. And having them lie down. And having them lie down. I think the Lancet has a really great video of the technique on their website. Is that right? Yes. They have a great video showing the technique. They also uh, show the use of a manometer to measure the exerting pressure during the Valsalva. So one of the nice things that the researchers did here is they had everyone blow up to a pressure of 40 millimeters of mercury, something that we could also easily do on the ward. Interesting. Okay. So why don't you tell me uh, about the study itself? So this was a pragmatic trial, uh, and obviously the physicians themselves couldn't be blinded to what was being done, but the patients weren't uh, told why one technique would be better than the other. So they were randomized to either conventional Valsalva or this modified maneuver. And then the primary outcome was conversion to sinus rhythm, and that was adjudicated by an investigator who was blinded to whether the patient received either the conventional or the modified approach. 214 patients were randomized into each group, and as I said, the primary outcome was whether they converted to sinus rhythm with a secondary outcome of whether adenosine was required or other uh, treatments for conversion to uh, sinus rhythm. And so uh, what were the baseline characteristics of these patients? Where did they recruit these patients from? Was it one center, multiple centers? Tell me a little bit about the setting. Yeah, so it was a multi-center trial done in England. And as I said, it was a pragmatic trial design, essentially recruiting all patients that came into the emergency room with an identified SVT. Uh, One of the great strengths of this trial, I think, is that because of their design, they included also a large number of physicians suggesting that this is not something that would only be isolated to a a smaller group of highly trained physicians. Uh, More than 160 physicians participated in the trial. So we're frontline administering either conventional Valsalva or the modified technique. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the patients themselves. How did they present? How many of them had a known diagnosis of SVT before? What, What is this cohort that the study was evaluating? Right, so about half the patients had a known SVT in the past. Um, They also were your typical presenting patient pool for this kind of condition. They were about 55 years of age. About 10% of them had diabetes. About 20% had hypertension. And about 3 to 5% had known ischemic heart disease. On presentation, these patients were stable. So any unstable patient had immediate 
emergency electric cardioversion. Um, so blood pressure was within the normal range, and the typical heart rate was about 175 beats per minute. Okay, so what were their findings? Right, so in the conventional treated group, so this is con con conventional Valsalva, 17% of patients converted to uh, normal sinus rhythm. This is compared to 43% in the modified Valsalva group. That's an odds ratio of successful conversion of 3.7 and a number needed to treat of 4. That is almost difficult to believe. 50% of these people had converted. I mean, based on my own experience and what you say in the literature, like Valsalva never works. You kind of look at it with real skepticism to get up to 50% effectiveness, right? Yeah, it's really remarkable. And you're right. The 17% that they had in the conventional treatment group, that's why we're so skeptical of Valsalva. It, it almost never works. I shouldn't say almost never. It works very, very infrequently. Um, and this was a very substantial improvement in successful conversion to sinus rhythm, so a very effective treatment. Um, as you would expect, with this successful conversion, there was decreased need for adenosine. So in the conventional group, about 70% of patients then required adenosine, whereas only 50% required it in this modified treatment group. Um, some other outcomes that were not part of the primary or secondary outcome group, uh, but important to report, was that there was no difference between these two groups in how long they were in the emergency room or discharge rates from the emergency room. And then this wasn't powered to look at major adverse outcomes, but for uh, commonly occurring adverse outcomes, there was no difference between these two groups. Were there any adverse events? So the adverse events that were reported were very infrequent and were at roughly the same rate between the two groups. Things like feeling lightheaded after having the Valsava being transiently hypotensive, having nausea, really not major things that we would worry about. What about recurrence of the arrhythmia? Right. So after successful conversion, either through the Valsava technique, whether it was conventional or modified, or the use of adenosine, there was no difference between the two groups in recurrence of arrhythmia right up to the point of discharge to the emergency room. So this trial doesn't give us information on long-term rates of recurrence, but right up to the point of being discharged, there was no difference. Wow. Okay. So it seems pretty impressive to me. What's the sort of summary and interpretation of these results? Yeah, I think this is quite an impressive trial. So this shows that a modified Valsalva technique that's very easy to implement seems much more effective than the conventional Valsalva technique in converting patients with an SVT to sinus rhythm. And it seems to work about 50% of the time. This technique does not require any additional resources and there's no additional costs associated with it. So it should be easy to implement worldwide. Um, it seems to be broadly reproducible with more than 160 physicians involved in the trial in administering this technique. And so I think this is something that we can immediately act on. And there's an accompanying editorial written by Martin Than and colleagues, and they do say in the editorial that they think that this is a technique that's ready for prime time. Yeah, and I guess just to wrap up, as you mentioned, this could really have global impact because of the low resource requirements to do these maneuvers. That's right. Yeah. So unlike many of the trials that we've discussed on the round table, rounds table, or many of the trials that we see in leading journals, this really doesn't require additional resources. And in fact, it's a method that can be taught to patients. And so the the manometer that they use in this trial to blow to 40 millimeters of mercury, they mentioned that there's also a modified technique there where patients are just taught to blow against a syringe until the plunger moves, and that 
replicates this 40 millimeters of mercury. So you can imagine this could be something that you could have patients do at home. It only takes a couple of minutes to do. If they don't convert to sinus rhythm or if their heart rate doesn't slow down, that's what you would tell them to monitor, well then come to emergency room. But if 50% of patients can do this at home, convert and then stay at a home, that's also dramatic in terms of healthcare costs. All of the triage costs, the assessment costs, et cetera, all of that would be avoided potentially for 50% of patients. Okay, thanks, Fahad. Why don't we change gears and move uh, to a topic that has received substantial uh, coverage and controversy in the media over the last few years, and that is to talk about e-cigarettes. So I want to talk about a study that was published in JAMA, which was a longitudinal survey of adolescents in California, and it showed that e-cigarettes are associated with increased tobacco use in adolescents. Okay, so tell me why they got to the point of wanting to do this study. What is the current controversy? Well, as you know, e-cigarettes are a hot topic. Some might say smoking hot. <laughs> I thought that I thought the summer got all of that out of you. Apparently not. Oh, you can't take the puns out of the pundit. Yes, I'm on a roll. Okay, a rolling cigarettes. Okay, these are now. This has gone from punning to. Loose associations and flight of ideas. Okay, so let's come back to the topic at hand. So what is an e-cigarette? There are two types of e-cigarettes, those which contain nicotine and those that don't. They look similar to cigarettes and they simulate smoking without actually having any combustion or without actually having any fire. The fluid is held in a battery-powered canister, which contains various mixes of chemicals and flavors, and the battery... Uh, vaporizes the fluid. And so smoking means inhaling vapor or vaping. So you asked about sort of the controversy or how we've come to examine the question of e-cigarettes. There are really three fundamental questions about e-cigarettes. So the first question is whether e-cigarettes themselves, vaping, is directly harmful to patients either in the short term or the long term. The second scientific question is, are e-cigarettes effective in helping people quit smoking conventional tobacco. And the third question is, are e-cigarette products actually a gateway to tobacco use, especially among young people? That third question is really what this article is trying to get at. So tell me a bit more about the gateway theory. What's the logic behind that? The logic behind the gateway theory is that the major health gains in tobacco cessation around the world have not actually been in the success of nicotine replacement therapies, but it's been in the success of public health efforts to reduce tobacco use, and specifically stigmatizing tobacco use or making it more expensive. And so the fear here is that having a very popular nicotine replacement therapy that looks like smoking might actually renormalize smoking and therefore make it more likely for people to start smoking again. And one of the big things that compounds this fear is that people have seen big tobacco companies becoming heavily involved in the e-cigarette market. Right. So this study is really an attempt to build on the current science around this, what we know about this gateway theory. So before this study, what did we know about the gateway theory? So there is pre-existing evidence. Yes. And what did it suggest? And was there flaws with the way that it was designed? Yeah, so probably the biggest study prior to this was published in July of 2014 in JAMA Pediatrics. And that study showed that e-cigarette use in middle school and high school students 
was associated with a higher risk of smoking cigarettes. Now that was a one-time survey, so it was a cross-sectional analysis. And the critics of that study argue that there's an association between e-cigarettes and smoking, but that's not a strong argument for the causation that e-cigarettes could cause smoking. And in fact, the obvious counter-argument is that perhaps that's a lot of people who uh, are trying to quit smoking. Right. As you see in the adult population. Right. right exactly. People who smoke, who use e-cigarettes as a way of cutting down on actually smoking. Exactly. And so this study tries to address that concern by being a longitudinal survey. Okay. So how did they set this up? Yeah. So this was a study of 2,500 adolescents in 10 public schools in Los Angeles. They looked at adolescents who were entering the ninth grade who had never smoked at baseline. They conducted repeated surveys at baseline, six months, and 12 months with all of those adolescents. And the outcomes that they were looking at was any use in the previous six months of a combustible tobacco product, which was cigarettes, cigars, or hookah. And they looked at exposure to e-cigarettes. They initially enrolled 3,300 students, of which about 800 had previously been exposed to tobacco, and so those were excluded, leaving 2,500 students. Of that cohort of 2,500 students, almost 20% reported previous use of e-cigarettes. And so one of the other strengths of this study was they were able to collect a lot of data around patient socioeconomic status, some demographic factors, things that might contribute to the use of tobacco or e-cigarettes. And so here's what they found. In comparing the two cohorts of students, the ones who had used e-cigarettes at baseline and the ones who had not, the people who used e-cigarettes were less likely to be white. They were more likely to come from single parent families. They were more likely to have a family history of smoking, to have peers who smoke, to have lower levels of parent educational attainment, more likely to have a personal history of substance use. They were more impulsive on impulsivity scales, and they were more likely to have delinquent behavior. So all of those factors you could imagine are like risk factors for smoking in and of themselves, right? That's right. That's right. Now, the interesting thing that they found is that these people who were using e-cigarettes were more likely to report the use of a tobacco-containing product six months down the line and 12 months down the line, even though they had never used tobacco before. And the difference was in the e-cigarette group, 31% at six months used a tobacco product versus 8% in the group that did not use e-cigarettes. So that's a, that's a very large difference. Do you feel like they were able to appropriately adjust for important confounders? I, I realize they had an extensive list, but that is such a large difference that it makes you wonder. Now, okay, this study has shown an association between the use of e-cigarettes at baseline and then subsequent use of tobacco, right? So the first point I think to acknowledge is that this somewhat refutes the quitting theory, which is that these are people who were exposed to e-cigarettes first and tobacco second, right? So then the question is, why does that association exist? Is it that there are similar factors that drive people to either tobacco or e-cigarettes? Or is it that the use of an e-cigarette then led to the tobacco use, right? Right. And so all those factors that I mentioned are the ones that you would imagine would drive people to both cigarette use or tobacco use and e-cigarette use. So what they did was they adjusted for all of them. And what they found was that when they adjusted for all of those factors, the association between e-cigarette use 
and subsequent tobacco use remained statistically significant. Specifically, if you looked at the unadjusted odds ratio, so that 31% to 8%, right. it's about four times. Once they adjusted for everything, they found that the odds of increasing tobacco use for e-cigarette users was between 1.75 and roughly three times. So even though the effect was reduced, it still remained statistically significant and still a pretty big effect size in that they were more than two times likely to go on to use a tobacco product. And, and we're describing a condition which has a high baseline prevalence among teenagers. Yeah. And so this is a big effect. Right. Absolutely. Having said that, your initial question to me was about unmeasured confounders, and you're absolutely right. So they did measure a number of confounders, but certainly one of the big limitations in an observational study like this is that there may be other confounders that they were not able to measure. Right. Yeah. So so that said, because of this inability to measure important, some potentially important confounders, what do you think the limitations are, or do you think this is now convincing evidence? I think some of the challenges with generalizing from this finding are, first of all, this was just in one area in Los Angeles. And so, uh, you know, there is a question of whether these this cohort of uh, students is the same as those around the country or in other countries. There are, are other limitations to this study. Probably the biggest one in my mind is that this study focused only on initiation outcomes. So it was really only about starting expo- exposure to either e-cigarettes or tobacco, they didn't track amount of tobacco use or the patterns of use. And that's the kind of information that would help you understand really what is the actual nature of the potential harm that we're talking about with e-cigarette use. For example, is it possible that uh, e-cigarette use is only associated with a small amount of tobacco exposure as opposed to a large amount of tobacco exposure? Right. But these are all definitely kind of second tier type of outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So all of that said, are you convinced? And and actually, it, it raises a question of what is the current legislation around e-cigarette use among youths? Can a, uh, can a convenience store sell e-cigarettes right now to a teenager? Yeah, so the legislative environment around e-cigarettes is murky and is changing rapidly. So in Canada, my understanding of the recent uh, legislation around e-cigarettes is that you can't sell or import or advertise nicotine-containing e-cigarettes. However, e-cigarettes are widely used and sold, so it's not a very very well-policed market right now. Uh, some of the provinces, so Ontario and Nova Scotia, are bringing in their own legislation, looking at uh, being more stringent about it. Canada is probably on the more strict end of the legislative environment for e-cigarettes compared to other countries. There's a great article about this on Healthy Debate, uh, and we'll link to that in our discussion of this uh, and in our podcast page for this episode. Great. So what's your takeaway? This article refutes the criticisms of previous observations about the association between e-cigarette use and tobacco in that the full association between e-cigarettes and tobacco cannot be explained by the theory of quitting and the fact that people who are using both are just using e-cigarettes to quit tobacco. I think that this article pretty successfully refutes that, especially in this adolescent population, just by the temporal characteristics of the exposure. I'm with you. I think actually this is very good evidence and about as good as we're going to get in this age group. And then I think the second point is whether e-cigarettes are a gateway 
This is certainly strong enough evidence to suggest that that is a real possibility. You know, it's time for governments to take a leadership role in starting to regulate what the Healthy Debate article calls the Wild West of e-cigarettes. So uh, thanks for the discussion, Fahad. Let's move on to our Good Stuff segment. Tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. So going back to my long tradition of quoting New York Times articles, I just want to refer everyone to an obituary for Oliver Sacks that was in the New York Times. Many of our listeners would be also people who have read uh, Dr. Sachs' prolific output of magazine, newspaper articles, and books. Um, this editorial brought uh, forth a lot of things about Dr. Sachs' life that I didn't know. Just a few tidbits. In his youth, he entered multiple weightlifting competitions. He joined the Hells Angels on motorcycle trips around the Grand Canyon. This was all prior to becoming a world-renowned neurologist, physician, and author. A really fascinating life and, and definitely something that's worth reading. Okay, thanks, Fahad. From my Good Stuff recommendation, I am breaking a personal rule of mine, which is the opposite of you, which is to never quote New York Times articles. The New York Times article that I want to direct your attention to in case you didn't see it is called The Case for Teaching Ignorance. So this article in the New York Times talks about how little our education emphasizes the amount of ignorance in science. For example... In 2006, and I'm quoting the article here, a Columbia University neuroscientist, Stuart J. Firestein, began teaching a course on scientific ignorance after realizing, to his horror, that many of his students might have believed that we understand nearly everything about the brain. He suspected that a 1,414-page textbook may have been culpable. So that's the end of the quote. And I agree. With, I couldn't agree with that more as someone who went through medical school just having facts crammed in my brain without realizing how few of those facts were actually facts. Thanks, Maul. That was great. Uh, I did read the New York Times article as well, and it's a terrific article. Thanks, Maud. Uh, nice talking to you again. Nice to be back. Looking forward to a whole new season, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks. Great to be with you.